Welcome to the Impact Learning Visionaries podcast, where we celebrate the unsung heroes of the learning and development industry. As always, we'll be bringing some laughter and a bit of fun along the way, but more importantly, you'll get some incredible insights, key lessons, and unique perspectives on everything related and possibly unrelated to training and development. Let's get this show on the road. Welcome everybody to the Impact Learning Visionaries podcast. Today we have with us Michelle Parry Slater. She is an award-winning senior workplace learning and development strategist and innovator with over 20 years of experience. She heads up Kairos Modern Learning, a boutique learning consultancy specializing in guiding and supporting organizations to embrace digital and social learning. Michelle's single driving purpose is to create a cultural shift from traditional education, which she calls injection education, super curious to find out more about that, to embracing the best digital, social and face-to-face workplace learning. And in doing so, she hopes her clients can experience efficient, enjoyable and impactful learning. Michelle is also the author of an exceptional book titled uh, The Learning and Development Handbook. Um, I've had a read through it and it's got some really, really great stuff in it. So, uh, Michelle, welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. What a pleasure. Um, likewise. And, um, and let's, let's jump in because I have so many questions. But um, the one I guess is, is you know, the, the, this podcast is all about your story. So I guess my first question is, what's the story behind the book? How did the you book, how did you come to the book? The the book was was reluctantly birthed, I think is fair to say. That mm-hmm. um I, I I have huge imposter syndrome when it was suggested to me, you know, you should write this in a book. And this in in my comment there is when I first went self-employed after being global head of learning uh, in corporate for some time, um I just thought, oh me. Back in my corporate days, there was only me in learning and a few colleagues that helped me out and things like that. But who did I get my inspiration from? Where did I go to get new ideas and to talk about new ideas, to think of new ideas and to be encouraged? And I went out to my network. And so my network at the time was largely on Twitter. Um, it's not quite the same platform these days. But back then, um, I tweeted every day for a year just as my sort of gift uh, um, to the community, but also to start and generate some conversations. And at the end of that year, I was interviewed on Learning Now TV, which is a, a little internet TV channel that Colin Steed runs, which is great. And they asked me, what are you gonna do now? Like, you're gonna keep tweeting every day. And I said, mm, I'm not so sure, maybe I will. I wasn't really sure what to do. And it was suggested, they said, well, why don't you write a book? No, how could I possibly do that? But the the idea was planted the seed was planted and it grew and i thought actually if i'm really genuinely wanting to support the learning and development community twitter is is one opportunity but actually a lot of people like me like a a, a head of learning or a learning practitioner in an organization they're more likely to read a book or an industry trade magazine or something like that so that's what gave me the courage to go. Yep, yeah, we're doing this for the we're doing this for the team, for the profession. We're helping out, um, and so I got over my imposter syndrome and I stared at my blank piece of paper for some time. Got over that as well as Chapter Fourteen explains how I did that, and and here we have have the book. So this is why we're having the conversation, Jason. Absolutely, and I mean there's there's 
a lot of very fascinating statistics that go around specifically focused on the learning and development industry, but, but you've, you've been in it. So I, I'm always curious to find out you know, how, how much of these statistics are engineered versus how, much, how many of them are actually real and are things that people see on a daily basis. And I guess the, the first big one is, um, is this kind of concept of mastery. And um, I don't know if, if you know about the, um, the uh, Gartner uh, report that was done in 2019, which had that very, very talked about statistic of seven out of 10 people in every corporate company or every business in the world today believe that they lack the mastery of skills to do their jobs effectively. And is, is, is that something that you think you know, is, is a reality we're facing today? Or do you think that's maybe a bit overestimated? I don't think it is overestimated, actually. Skills deficit is is real. Um, we've had to learn new skills very, very quickly uh, in order for businesses to survive over the last four years. I'd be really interested to see the comparable Gartner report for more, more mm. modern days. I would almost imagine it would have gone down in terms of skills. So a lot of my clients, upskilling is really important. Um, you know, reskilling workforces mm. for a working environment that's totally and utterly changed. Um, and consequently, development of people um, it is so fundamental, certainly over here in the UK, where we're facing economic downturn and, and globally as a result of the pandemic, where things are just a, that little bit tougher than they used to be. Mm. Um, the importance of being able to keep on top of people development means that you are actually keeping ahead of your competition. It means that you're, you're not going backwards. My view is that if we don't develop our people, it's not even that we're standing still. We're heading backwards because those companies that are developing their people, they're, they're getting more than just the skills uplift. They're getting the feeling of being valued. They're getting the feeling of being invested in. They're getting that loyalty from staff who are genuinely wanting to succeed within their organization and wanting their organization to succeed and hopefully playing into the company strategy. So I think people development is more than just skills. It's more than just um you know, going on a course and, and learning some stuff. Um, you mentioned in the intro about injection education, and that's really what I call that, where you go to a place, usually physical, sit in a room uh, and you get knowledge pumped into you. We all know with injections, they wear away. Uh, and, you know, it's not an efficient way to, to do skills uplift, which is why I advocate for a wider blending of opportunity to learn. Um, and that skills uplift is never finished. So we're always learning all of the time. It's just how do we recognize that as learning? That feels like a quite a long answer to a short question there, Jason. Ultimately, yes, well, I totally agree. Whether the number yes. is seven out of 10 or whether it's six or eight, <laughs> I genuinely think that there's something in this. Definitely. And, and I, I guess, you know, when you asked about whether it was, whether the um, statistics had changed for the better or the worse, I see that there has been a more recent study done by PwC, which doesn't measure exactly the same statistic of mastery, um, but, but talks about how now like more people, so now they've gone to almost eight out of 10 people are desperately seeking the right type of, of training um, for, for their careers. So I guess if anything, it's gotten a little bit worse as you predicted. Um, so moving, moving on then, I think the, the next, I mean, I, I, 
Firstly, I, I completely agree. You know that that you're kind of you talked about sage on the stage as as being the predominant form of learning, and it's actually really interesting because part of what we do is is every year we go out and do an industry report, and and it's fascinating that our very latest industry report that's about to be released probably in a few weeks' time is showing that that still about eighty percent of people are using traditional kind of sage on the stage as you call it, learning modalities um, for training. And, and especially so when it comes to the more softer skills side of training. But, but you're advocating for very much a blended approach because you do see value in that, but you see kind of almost a both and approach to learning. Maybe you want to just unpack that yeah. for us a bit. I'm really pleased that you're picking up on that both and. Um, it's, not, mm. it's not either or. Uh, it is really important because we need to advocate for the right solutions for the right problem for the right people at the right time um and that might it might genuinely be an in-person intervention of some description it doesn't need to be sage on the stage it doesn't need to be you know the teacher at the front of the class lecturing to people um you know the reason that we had that technology and i use it as a, a as a technology is because once upon a time we had limited resources we had somebody with the knowledge who needed to to impart it and there were only one way of doing that which was to stand there and talk about it you know we had one book and one person who'd read the book and therefore could to teach others but that technology is you know 200 plus years old why are we still advocating for that as the only option today when actually you know the advent of smartphones the advent of laptop computers um, we've got this consumer grade technology at our fingertips we've got the skills around that consumer grade technology we know if we need a new i don't know recipe or to learn how to break dance or whatever it might be. We go online, we've got those skills to search that stuff up. Mm. What becomes important from an L&D perspective is sort, sorting through the noise. Because of course we Google something and we get whoever's paid to be at the top of that list. Mm. Then we get the, the, the stuff that everyone else has looked at. The quality piece of information actually might be, you know, a, a report or a thesis that somebody's done, which sits on page four or five of Google. And so we in L&D can start to discern on behalf of our organization, what is pertinent, what is context rich, uh, and stop them having to go through the pain of sorting through all of the noise. So the, we definitely need a balance. And for me, it always starts with what is the problem that we're trying to solve? What is the business reason why somebody would need to learn something new? And therefore, what's the best way that we can help them. It might be a mentor, which again, in person, one-on-one, -on -one. Um, but that's an option that often can be discounted if we only default to courses and classroom, or as I call it, injection education. Hmm. Fascinating. And um, I, I guess one of the things that, that you know, we're, we're debating internally is these these different types of learning and, and you know, the, the the whole story around um, the way that we like to learn and this kind of concept of experiential learning and, and you know, a lot of the kind of classroom based learning and especially the e-learning is probably moving more towards rote or theoretical learning and less towards experiential learning. What is what is your take on, you know, 
experiential learning? Do you think that it's it's a, a you know? Do you think we should be doing more experiential learning? Do you think that it's it's something that's going to improve learning outcomes? I mean, what what is your general take on experiential learning? I'm curious. I think I'll always go back to what's the problem you're trying to solve. So if, for example, you want somebody who's new to working in a warehouse to use a machine and you take them away from the machine, you sit them in a classroom and you talk to them or you take them away from the machine and you put them behind a computer and you give them kind of click next quiz at the end e-learning, don't be surprised when that doesn't work. They still can't use the machine. However, if you were, for example, to put a QR code next to that machine, if they don't know how it works or that bit of the machine doesn't work and they can just, you know, hold their mobile device over that machine, a video pops up of somebody walking them through, they can pause it and they can look at what they're seeing in real life, then that's much better use of a digital asset than any other type, you know, in the olden days, they would be looking at the machine, somebody would be there next to them walking them through that. Now that's massively expensive resource. So where you can shift that to a digital option, you know, if if resource is no issue, then VR experience uh, experiencing using that machine, you know, in, in a way that can't damage you or the machine. Um, there's loads of options out there. So we have to take what is the context? Who's the individual that needs something um, from us in terms of learning? Uh, you know, what budget do we have available? These practical things are really important. So there's never one size that fits all. We can't say experiential learning is the way forward. Um, you know, the same way as we can't say e-learning is the way forward or classroom is the way forward. What is the issue that you're solving and what is the best possible way to get the best possible outcome? That's the work that I do with my clients. And, mm -hmm. you know, let me give you a tangible example. One of my clients came to me and they said, Michelle, can you teach our sales team to be more consultative in their selling approach? Because, you know, you're a consultant in learning and development and we need to sell learning and development product. And I said, I can't teach them necessarily because they need to feel it. They need to understand why they're doing it. They need to understand what shifted in your business that now they need to sell differently. And I said, why don't we take them somewhere which feels so different, so different than they've ever been before that they'll start to question because as soon as they start to question, they're starting to use the techniques of being a consultant, which is largely questioning and listening. And so we went to an outdoor activity center and all of them were like, why are we here? This feels weird. Great. That is exactly how I needed you to feel because this will, this is the shift that you need to make the behavioral shift from something that feels comfortable selling boxes to now selling, uh, you know, time to have good conversations, something that will feel weird to you at first. And, and lo and behold, they've done really well with, with this long-term you know, approach that we took. That was just the first step. So it's always about what is the problem you're trying to solve and who are you dealing with when you're solving that problem? Fantastic. And out of curiosity, what was that outdoor activity? Was it by any chance full contact crocheting? Um, <laughs> painfalling? 
so, so we went to um, to a place which uh, had uh, teepees, it had an outdoor theater, it had an outdoor workshop, and we did like different things in different spaces. So I got some uh, industry speakers to come up and they had this kind of really fantastic opportunity to meet with people who are really senior in the in the L&D space here in the UK. And, um, and we had loads of great opportunities for conversations, for, for listening, for asking questions because of course that's the activity that they needed to to start doing and they'd never you know can imagine if we'd have done that which we could have done in a hotel um mm. you know with the sort of strip lights overhead the typical kind of environment where you you would go for external um learning courses and that kind of thing it, we would, just would have had totally different conversations but uh, yeah wandering around outside walking next to each other all good stuff Brilliant. Okay, so coming coming back then to this blended learning approach, <clears throat> I think you know, how how have you dealt with with the kind of of fear of the new? Uh, I think uh, there's probably a reason that a lot of people are doing stage on the stage because it's what they know. It's it's what they know how to measure. It's what they know how to plan and and strategize for. But what's your advice for learning and development um, practitioners who have you know? never tried any of these alternative blended learning approaches i always remember how i felt because i started out in my career as sage on the stage i started teaching english um, uh, in japan and um, from there ended up kind of always the person that knew knew anyone new come to the business um, when I moved back to England, they would sit them with me and say, oh, Michelle's a teacher, she'll tell you what to do. And I'm like, am I a teacher? Well, okay. Um, and, and that moved into me becoming sort of a European head of learning. And that's where I started, you know, people, I would fly around Europe and, and teaching people. But soon I realized that actually they weren't getting the best of me. If I've got up at four in the morning to go and catch a flight and then get on the plane, you're two hours in the airport, all of that, all of that nonsense, they were just getting me not necessarily in a good day. So I had to start thinking about how do I, for them, for the learners, how do I let them experience me on a good day every day? So unsurprisingly, we went to a video-based learning platform and I had to make that jump. So I remember that feeling. I remember that that challenge of does this downgrade me? Does this make me feel like I'm less important? I'm not I'm not in big into ego. Um, and, and so I quickly could kind of get over those because I always focus on the learners, what's best for the learners and what's best for the outcomes of the learners. So when I help organizations to move away from um you know the the injection stage on the stage stuff i always remember that feeling i always remember why we're doing it in the first place and if we can talk people through that change that shift i think what then happens is i'm giving them a hand up i'm I, i'm I, i'm always mindful of the human in work that i do whether that's working mm. with trainers for them to become learning curators or if that's working with um companies to focus on their learners and their learning outcomes do it with heart do it with kindness and empathy and just remember that journey and how it felt for myself and that that mm -hmm. way um you know we we're not telling people what to do we're just encouraging them to think differently brilliant and and it almost segues perfectly into the next question is is you know that e-learning 
traditional classroom-based learning, um, ex expert in-person learning, even kind of uh, you know immersive technologies, are all ways that we learn. But but I, I was also fascinated to see that you spoke about the difference between traditional learning, digital learning, and social learning. And the social learning is is really fascinating. And I was, I was curious for you to kind of unpack that because I don't think a lot of people think about that process when they are starting on that learning journey and thinking actually about who are the people I'm trying to take on this journey and and how what are the relationships between these people and how can I be the most effective and how can I deal with all the stakeholders involved. So, yeah, I think it was fascinating. I think social learning, just for, for the listeners to understand, I define it as people learning from people. People often get it mixed up with social media. That's a separate, mm. separate thing. So just to, to, to take it from that place, people learning from people. It is the most fundamental that we have done learning forever. Um, you know, we, we as, as children, we learn stories, we, we, we copy, we see what our family and friends are doing. And, and, and that's how we, you know, nature versus nurture arguments come into play. Mm -hmm. So we've all got these skills. We talk to people where, you know, as human beings are social creatures. And um, so how do we harness that? Well, social learning is what happens in the absence of formal learning and development. This is where, you know, I don't know how to do my job. Well, I'll just ask Tony who's sitting next to me, or I'll just, you know, call up um, Abdul because I know Abdul's an expert in this particular thing that I can't do. So we will create our networks and we will use those networks. And this is why when you look at an organization chart, you see, you know, whatever the hierarchical structure or if you're enlightened, the more flatter structure might be. But what you're not seeing is who is the oil and the glue in your organization? Who are the connectors? Who are the people that oh, I've got a problem? Go and speak to Lucille. Lucille's got all the answers. So, you know, Lucille might be the receptionist or the person that works in the canteen or the post person or you know, i.e. not a senior, if you look at an org chart, not a senior person, but they're the person that everyone knows. They're the connector, they're the, the you know, they oil the, the organization and they stick the people together. They're the community hub. And so a lot of social learning will go on in your organization. My advocacy there is that, why don't we recognize that? Why don't we bring that into the blend? Why don't we enable a place for people to talk to each other because when people have got the opportunity to be a little bit vulnerable and say, do you know what? I, I don't know how to do that. And that's got to be OK. Or do you know what? I really failed at doing that well. How can I get better? And if you can plug someone in, it could just be, for example, getting all of your best experts in a short blog. What are your top tips You know, on your intranet? Or it could be um, videoing your best sales guy and their presentation. Uh, you know, in a summary of how do they do that? How do they just come across so naturally? Um, you know, so you've, you've got these resources within your organization, but we tend to just not use them. We think of learning as more formal or separate from that. But actually, this is generally how people will be learning. As I say, in the absence of something, people are pretty resourceful. Um, but it's can you create that sort of healthy organization which says, Actually, I just had the worst call with a customer. I really failed at doing that. I need some help. Who's good at having customer calls? Who can I plug into? Who can mentor me? Um, you know, it might even be a simple checklist. Um, people think that we need learning to be sophisticated and complex. Um, it needs to be a thing that's done to us. 
but your L&D department might do really well to just draw up some checklists. When you're talking to your customers, don't forget, you know, don't forget to greet them with, with empathy or don't forget to say thank you at the end of the call. Um, and that could just be a little aid memoir for people mm -hmm. to learn from the best in your business. Because let's face it, we hire good people. I mean, your recruitment team should be hiring good people. We don't hire people because they're rubbish at the jobs. We mm -hmm. hire people because they're innovative and creative and got experiences and willing to learn. Um, and so why aren't we using those, those resources as, as part of our, our learning blend? Yes, it reminds me of one of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes, which is, I don't hire in gifted, intelligent people so I can tell them what to do. I hire them so they can tell me what to do. Yeah, um, perfect. So, yeah. It's absolutely how it should be. So if I was putting, if I was kind of putting myself in the shoes of a, a person who's, who's, who's never really blended this kind of form of, of social learning into a, a, a blended learning framework. I mean, I, I could imagine it must feel quite overwhelming because I've, I've already got all of these like new technologies and this immersive technologies and chat GPT and all of these other things starting bombarding me. And here comes along this the social side as well. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't have time for that. But but it, you're right, it's important. So so how how would you advocate for people who've not really embedded that type of learning into um, their approaches to, to almost kind of start to experiment and, and try out some ideas. Jason, I love you've used the word experiment because that's exactly what I'd advocate for. I call it tiny trials. So I always think if you go where the data is, if you go follow the, follow the, um, the stories from the data, it will point you to the right solution. Um, we often start in learning and development with the solution, and I think it's too soon. We should start with our research. We should start with really understanding why we're doing what we're doing, who we're doing it with, what is our stakeholders telling us, uh, you know, what engagement do we need as an outcome, what, what is the problem we're trying to solve. So we've got all of that stacked up, and uh, that will help us to understand, well, what solution do I need to plug into play? Um, and in terms of starting, we just start with something and we watch it. We, we watch it unfold. Start really small. Do a tiny trial. So you may have, I don't know, a traditional leadership development program that you've always run. Carry on doing that. But plug in at the end of that. Here is a community of practice. Most organizations now are running some type of um, of. Uh, um, teams or or slack or something like that um you know this is how their people remotely are communicating with each other even if they are bus drivers or, or nurses working in a hospital they've got connectivity in a digital format so create a little community and an alumni community that spits out the end of your traditional pr practice and this is a place where people can share ideas share resources test and learn keep in touch now you will need to seed it. What is interesting when you set up communities is you would think, well, you've all got something in common, so you must talk to each other beyond the learning. No, because they've got a day job and this is just another thing to do. So it's always got to be useful. So planning in a series, maybe over a period of a month or six weeks, just plugging something in, you know, we had our program, have you seen this resource? Or we've had our program, how have you found uh, applying that knowledge and that learning that you've had? What problems have come up for you? What barriers would you like to discuss? So you end up as the learning and development professional being that oil and the glue. You're sticking people mm -hmm. together and you're easing the way for them. 
at the end of that six weeks, just see what sort of engagement you had, you know, thank your advocates and be really generous of spirit with those people that have engaged, celebrate that success. I don't think we do enough celebration. Mm. Um, and that starts to become a way of seeing, will your people keep engaging? Are, you know, where are they? Do they have these conversations anyway? So with social learning, start with small things, start with just adding it in, um, even better if you can go where they are. So I'll never forget, I, I did a leadership program for an organization and um, and I started in, in the early days of talking to them about what would we do as this leadership program in terms of a solution. Um, you know, what do you have for digital learning? And they were a retailer. So they said, oh, we don't do any digital. It's all got to be face to face. We can't embrace any digital at all because our guys are retailers. They're in shops. They're on the shop floor. They don't have laptops. They're not sitting at desks. They have no digital. Of course, we turn up on day one. These are people from all over the country and they all know each other middle managers, all of them, and they all know each other. And we're like, hey, how do you guys like from the north of England know people from the south of England? And they're like, oh, we've got a WhatsApp group. Of course they're digital. Of course they know each other. Of course they're connected because that's our consumer grade tech, which has been leading that yeah. for a long time. And the work-based tech has, uh, and the work-based attitudes have been following up. So we were like, great, at the end of this program, we're going to plug you into your WhatsApp group and we're going to say, you know, have some practice, share each other's photographs of your stores and how are you getting really good traction with, um, you know, your special displays and things like that. And so going where they are is another way of really capturing that social learning. Because honestly, they are not waiting for your course. They are talking to each other. They are yeah. not just doing their e-learning and then dropping off the end. You know, they are having conversations. And if we're not embracing those conversations, the risk we run in L&D is that we don't, we don't know that they're sharing the right stuff with each other. So, you know, if I don't know how to do something and I ask Marjorie that sits next to me, who's worked here for 30 years, I'm getting Marjorie's 30 year old uh, experience. I'm not necessarily getting the right or the best experience for today. 100%. And I was actually going to touch on that. So I'm glad you kind of got there first is, is, is obviously being able to create that level of transparency as well. And, and, you know, kind of keeping everybody on the same page. I, I guess my own kind of, you, you talked about communities of practice and, and we get this, these kind of, of social constructs like centers of excellence, communities of practice. And you, you almost, you, you kind of touched on it, but I've, I've personally, um, from my experience in the past is they, they require quite a lot of energy to get started and they're, they're notoriously difficult to kind of achieve that self-organizing behavior, which I think is the kind of, nirvana of all of these communities of practice and you you see incredible examples of global communities of practice you know like toastmasters and alcoholics anonymous and all of these things taking um, almost a kind of life of their own and i've always had this belief that there's that self-organization comes from setting kind of almost clear structures and guidelines almost rules of engagement in in front of all of these things so people know how to act and how to behave have you, I mean, what is your kind of take on communities of practice and this, this social kind of learning and how to make it self-organizing so that it doesn't require a constant energy and nurturing from the, from the L&D manager? How, how do at some stage they let go and, and allow everybody to just kind of, of start to self-organize? Purpose. 
people will go to something that's useful. And so if it's got purpose, if you're just saying to people, hey, here's a Teams group that I put you all in, well, what are we doing there? Like, what's the point of that? But if you're saying, here's a Teams group I've put you all in because you've been on this program, at the end of the program, you all agreed you would take an action, share the outcomes of your action. You know, on, on Wednesday, we'll, we'll meet up, we'll come together and we'll share those, uh, you know, and then in the meantime, support each other. And you're giving that purpose, you're setting that purpose. But I think there's also a place for knowing when a community will end. Communities don't need to go on and on and on. You know, you could have a distinct time line around that or you could notice when that purpose is fulfilled and you can celebrate. That is the key. If you celebrate that work, you, you can draw a line under it and people will remember that as, oh, yeah, that was a really great place to be. I enjoyed being in that community. I felt supported. I got something out of it. It was purposeful. And then we celebrated it. So the next time. Are we having a community? And it starts to be like, this was useful. Whereas what tends to happen in organizations is they'll set up a community, nothing happens. There's no seed material, like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's no encouragement, there's no oil and glue. And so it just, you know, the tumbleweed is rolling by and people remember it as flat and a bit boring. And what was the point? And so their memory will then be moved forward to the next time. Oh, there's no point of that. I'm not I'm not even going to sign up for it because like that's just a, a vacant desert of, of, of a wasteland of a space. People are used to behaving in communities. We all have communities, you know, whether you are a cyclist or you love cooking Mexican food, whatever your hobby is, you know, you'll seek out community where it's purposeful and where it adds value to your life. Um, you know, so that's why we need to replicate that in those social learning spaces and be very honest. Um, you know, if it's not working for you, try it in a different way. If it is too much work, then see if your biggest advocate will take on that community. Um, you know, there's so many times people will just plug a forum in and nothing happens. And it's exactly like you've described, Jason. You know, what are the rules mm -hmm. of engagement? How, how am I acting in this space? Awesome. Okay, so just two two final questions, I guess. One, and they're always the two I like to end off with, is is you are now the digital sage on the stage um, for a community out there who is watching this. And and besides the obvious next step of go and read Michelle's book immediately, um, if if you could give. You know, one one nugget, one wealth of experience, one thing that you think you know you would like to impart to this audience. Some like the ultimate sage nugget. Um, what what would that be for other learning and development managers out there or people in this space? Start with the real problems on the ground, not the solutions. So many times people will come to us and say, oh, you know, my, my team need a team building day or my team need to go on this course. Why? Why do they need to go on that course? What is the problem that you're trying to solve? Because once you've got the problem that you're trying to solve, you can be really clear on what the outcomes will be and you can demonstrate your value. And one of the reasons that L&D is easily dismissed in organizations or at times of economic hardship is because we don't talk enough about our value. We don't shout enough about and celebrate the work that we are achieving on behalf of the organization. And we can only do that 
if we start with the real problems on the ground, not the perceived issues. So, you know, a lot of organizations have their annual appraisals and they ask the question, what do you want to learn next year? And nobody can really answer it, articulate it, because who talks about learning? Who cares about learning other than the learning people? But actually, if we start to talk about, well, what are the barriers to your success in your team? What's the things that keep you awake at night? What are the things that make you worry at work? They're the real problems. And then once we've got the data and the information around those, we can really plug in with co-created solutions. We can work alongside our, our stakeholders to absolutely plug in something that we know is going to work rather than something we are guessing or hoping will work, which is, you know, the traditional course. That's, that's what you're going mm -hmm. for when you sort of, everyone goes through the same experience and uh, for some it will stick for others it won't whereas we can tailor things when we're dealing with real problems so that's my my one piece of advice but you've made me feel guilty i feel like i've just injected education into people <laughs> um so not at all i mean so, context so my, is my, important my, i guess yeah i think my my fascination is with learning is is i haven't come across a single person who who isn't excited by the prospect of learning something new and i've got a new hobby i want to master it i want to be the best person i can at my job i want to be successful i want to be wealthy all of this is just another way of saying i want to learn new skills i want to get better i want to improve so we all love to learn but there's something wrong with the way we learn so it's that next step of how do we actually then learn and i, I think you've kind of covered it beautifully you know there's we really need to actually understand what is what is that root cause like what is the real problem we're trying to solve why do i want to learn that thing because I, I think without that motivation um it, it's it's not going to be sustainable and and if businesses don't do that as well then you know we have learning without real value or impact yeah. so yeah. i think it, it is definitely perfect definitely about the motivation thing isn't it because to say everyone wants to learn and some people want to come and do their job earn their money because their life that exists outside of work is more fun for them you know they hang glide or they volunteer or whatever um or they snowboard and break their arm and is that what's happening <laughs> you know generally there, there's it, it it is plugging into people's motivation and in a work-based setting that motivation often comes from frustration and if we can plug into supporting people to ease their frustration, to stop their friction, to stop their challenges, then they will definitely be motivated to learn. And uh, we can yeah, get that energy and plug that energy into a learning setting. Brilliant. And, and we had a fascinating speaker with us yesterday who was talking almost about, you know, kind of engineering the environment to, to make that so coming at it from the kind of culture perspective. All right. Fun That's a whole new podcast to... for me. One of the frameworks in my book is about environment and permission and culture because we just don't address it enough when it comes to L and D. Yes. But that's for another day, Jason. <laughs> yes, yes. Until next until the next episode, yes. Um so final question is um I always like to ask ask us because this is a learning journey for us and for everybody. So if if I could ask you to give us um insight into Maybe a recent book or podcast that you've heard or listened to that had a an impact on you, you know, some something that kind of resonated or something that made you have an aha moment. I have been listening uh, quite recently to Elizabeth Day's podcast, How to Fail. 
and I was initially attracted to it. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't. She's she's quite a big thing in the UK, but I I'd not come across it. And I was attracted to the failure part because learning from failure or the ability to showcase your failures in an organization, I think is really important. Often we sweep our failure under the table and we don't talk about it, but there's such richness. So really love but Elizabeth to her podcast, How to Fail, she has really high empathy, hugely high empathy and kindness. And she talks about failure in, a, in the opportunity for learning, which offers people um, it's very, very vulnerable for people, her guests on her podcast, but it's not coercive at all. And I think as an approach, there's something we can all pick up from that. So I think she's the perfect host to just remind us how to utilize the talent that we do have, how not to be so hard on ourselves and how actually all of our life experiences are, are an opportunity for us to learn. Plus, she sounds really like a good friend of mine, Grayson, who's moved away and I don't see very often. So when I listen to her, I think, oh, it's just like listening to my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I completely resonate with that. So I think, um, you know, I think we often... Uh, try to to put our failures behind us as quickly as possible and uh i think some of my pro most profound learnings um and the biggest shifts like the, the the leaps i've made in my my life have often been as a result of of some kind of spectacular failure um and and it's actually a, a, for, for my entrepreneurial side you know I, I acutely remember my the first time i failed at business how my world was coming to an absolute end. It was the worst moment of my life. And going through that process has made me more resilient and more willing to actually be an entrepreneur because I know that failure is not the end of the world. So completely agree. I love that idea. Um, and, and I wanted to say thank you for joining us on the show. It's been absolutely fantastic having you. Um, I think you've got some incredible insights. I would really encourage everybody to read this book um, even if you're not in learning and development and you're going on your own learning journey there is so much value in this book so thank you so much michelle for joining us on this podcast you're very welcome it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you hey thanks so much for joining us for this episode of impact learning visionaries if you found it interesting or helpful please subscribe by clicking on the button down below so you don't miss our next one also, be sure to check out our Reality Bytes blog for more information on how technology is aiding in learning development. Links are all in the description below. Go check it out. Thanks a lot. Bye.